0: This week, we are moving away from our uh, multi-week discussion of civil war by other means and coming back to a series of issues that bring the history of our international society together with contemporary affairs, and no issue does this more directly and more tragically than the current war in Ukraine. We're fortunate to be joined again by our good friend and really someone who Already was a leading scholar of Russia and U.S. affairs and European affairs before the war, but is now catapulted, I think, to one of the leading public intellectuals on the topic, uh, our good friend, uh, Dr. Michael Kimmage. Michael, thank you for joining us again.
2: It's, it's so wonderful to be back with the two of you.
0: Michael Kimmage is a professor of history at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. He's also a fellow at the German Marshall Fund and chair of the advisory council for the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. He served on the uh, policy planning staff of the Department of State from 2014 to 2017, and he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio for the policy planning staff in that role. He publishes widely on international affairs, U.S.-Russian relations, intellectual and diplomatic. history uh written a number of books that we've mentioned before the one I'll just highlight now which seems particularly relevant the abandonment of the west the history of an idea in American foreign policy and michael has been remarkably prolific in the last few months, writing uh, more than a dozen major pieces in foreign affairs and other places, other major publications in the United States and overseas, putting the war in Ukraine in historical perspective. Uh, so we're really fortunate to have, have Michael with us today. Before we turn to our discussion uh, with Michael Kimmage, we have, of course, uh, Mr. Zachary's poem. What is the title of your poem today?
1: A Fragmentary
0: Illusion. I can't wait to hear this one. Let's hear it.
1: When the bomb fell, they were walking in the park, and when the fire started, they were opening their frosted-over windows to greet the morning as if it were a bluebird on a branch a few feet away. A few feet away, they were, the children, dancing in little circles down the avenue, reading off words like they were fragments in some grand mosaic, and bread, delivery, recruitment, were needed, necessary if only to see some bigger less fragmentary illusion illusions the light was dancing on the blue green windows illusions the roads seemed to bend and the voices suddenly illusions dissipate into a general groaning eventually we will all be groaning eventually we are all alone and we find ourselves like them Grave at the river's edge, an unremembered, unrecognizable individual.
0: Zachary, that really uh, evokes so many emotions. What is your, your poem about?
1: My poem is really about the uh, conflict between the individual experience of war and the dehumanization uh, that comes with such widespread violence uh, and the terror uh, such that uh, Putin has been imposing on the people of Kiev and other parts of Ukraine in recent days. Uh, and, and and the the real horror, not just in its physical toll on the population, but also in its dehumanization. Right, right. Well, Michael, uh, that's a sad place to start, but
2: probably the appropriate place to start in talking about the war, right? That's correct. Yeah, I believe it's the eighth month of the war, probably approaching the ninth month. And exactly as Zachary illustrates in his beautiful poem, I mean, the the humanitarian toll remains... Astonishingly high uh, and uh, the recent development of targeted attacks on Ukraine's electrical grid and civilian infrastructure, which have been ongoing since the beginning of the war, but have intensified in the last couple of weeks, really, again, underscore the immense humanitarian price that the Ukrainians are paying for this needless and criminal war. Michael, with the perspective of eight to nine months now, um, following
0: things as closely as you are with the historical knowledge you have. What do you think this war is about? What 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 is driving the, uh, not just Vladimir Putin, but primarily Vladimir Putin and the other actors in this
2: war? Well, I think Putin is difficult to characterize at the present moment. I think that he has, because the war has not gone well for Russia, has changed to a degree uh, in his ambitions, not his ultimate ambitions, which remain, I think, in a sense, simple. He wishes to control the the destiny of Ukraine and through control of the destiny of Ukraine, he wishes to rewrite the rules uh, of European secure, security and European uh, order. And those are, in his view, grand ambitions. And I don't think he's given up on those grand uh, ambitions, but they seemed perhaps tantalizingly within reach in the first couple of days of the war for Putin. And they've really receded further and further from, uh, from view for him. So, you know, I think his tangible ambition at the present moment is just to kind of hold on through the winter uh, and see if he can draw this war out and extend it and if the other side will start to uh, to crack but uh, you know sort of a, a broader view of victory for Putin I think is very very hard to uh, to identify at the moment I sort of feel from Putin's side or from Russia's side that the war is entering into a nihilistic phase that it's not Really determined by victory anymore. It's difficult to say what victory <clears throat> might mean under the circumstances, but the will to inflict suffering is still uh very great. And in a sense, to deprive Ukraine of any kind of victory or to deprive Ukraine's Western supporters of any kind of victory, but it's 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 gone from a positive set of ambitions in the sense that there was an order Putin wished to create to a negative set of ambitions. You know, so the worst-case scenarios that he's trying to Uh, to forestall. That's, you know, one half of the crisis. For Ukraine, I don't think that the war is complicated to characterize uh, either. Uh, In a sense, it's a very different trajectory for Ukraine. It was utterly existential for the first couple of weeks uh, and months. I do think that we can say with confidence that uh, Ukraine will hold and Kiev will be its capital and Zelensky's government uh, will stay uh, in place, uh, absolutely, for the foreseeable future or simply for the future, was which is a kind of astonishing victory for Ukraine. But the struggle for survival is still absolutely ongoing and absolutely unfinished. Uh, and uh, in that sense, Ukraine has achieved a great deal. Uh, but the road ahead of it is going to be long. I think it's for the third side of the conflict, which is the Western and international global supporters of Ukraine, where in some respects, the the war is most difficult to, to characterize. It's about support for Ukraine. Uh, it's about keeping Ukrainian sovereignty and independence as the Biden administration continues coherently to affirm. But, you know, beyond that, the kind of goals of the war uh, are a little bit uh, nebulous. So Russia is struggling not to lose. Ukraine is going to struggle to hold on to all that it's uh, achieved over the last 8 9 months uh, and the western supporters are going to be there behind ukraine but uh i think with a little bit less of a strong story to tell
1: and with the benefit of uh whatever 8 months of hindsight can provide um uh why do you think it was that the ukrainians were able to resist what what many including uh us three uh on february 24th uh predicted would be a very Swift uh, Ukrainian defeat.
2: Yes, I mean it's it's uh, it's an excellent question, and it's very nice to be reminded of that conversation that we had at the beginning of this whole uh, <clears throat> nightmare, uh, and to be reminded that for the three of us who, from the very beginning, were completely sympathetic with the Ukrainian cause, uh, that we underestimated uh, several of the capacities that have shown themselves uh, in in spades over the last. Uh, couple of months uh, in Ukraine. So I think that you could answer the question really from two vantage points. And most important is to start with, uh, with Ukraine, that it's a country of considerable size, you know, roughly the size of Texas and a population a bit under 40 million uh, that has always had a sort of proverbial about Ukraine, that there are regional, ethnic, linguistic and religious Uh, differences within Ukraine uh, and there had been one source of skepticism about whether it could pull through with a war uh, but Ukrainians have resolved that problem I don't think that that's uh, an issue at this stage it's not that the differences have gone away but they're in no sense uh, an obstacle to the kind of national unity that's necessary uh, at wartime Uh, secondly for the Ukrainians uh, the military that they have uh, is one that's quite a lot better than it was in 2014, uh, that's, uh, you know, sort of better integrated, uh, better run, uh, better equipped equipped when it, than it was when, you know, Russia took Crimea and handed Ukraine a couple of defeats in the summer and, and, and winter of 2014, 2015. Uh, and, you know, in addition to a high quality military, uh, Ukrainian decision making has, I think, been extremely uh, sound. Hmm. Uh, the ways in which... Uh, the Russians were repelled around Kiev and in the north in the first couple of months, uh, how Ukraine withstood the war of attrition that Russia was imposing on it in the summer with seemingly some success on the Russian side, but that was endured. Uh, and then, of course, as we've all been watching since the 10th of September, the uh, extraordinary counteroffensive, uh, which has uh, been a strategic success and, and, and also indicates how well the Ukrainian military has absorbed us and other kinds of advanced military assistance that's been coming to ukraine and and has been very very successfully integrated so national unity successful political and military leadership uh, and you know high morale and success uh, on the battlefield that's been the recipe uh, on the ukrainian side and i think you see a lot of the virtues that you ukraine has demonstrated sort of mirrored uh, in russian vices uh, over the last couple of months so a lunatic concept of operations for Russia far too ambitious for uh, for Russian capacities uh, political goals that Putin can describe in the Kremlin but that don't speak very urgently to uh, a lot of Russian soldiers who don't know what they're doing uh, in Ukraine uh, and uh, a sort of consistent for Russian for Russia catastrophic underestimation uh, of Ukraine that they failed to see how Russia could even lose around Kiev, and yet Russia did. And then they learned very few lessons from that uh, and were completely ill-prepared for the counteroffensive around Kharkiv and have been struggling further to the south in uh, in Kherson. So sort of hubris, uh, lack of organization, really a lack of purpose, I would say, in the war. Not that Putin hasn't given it a rhetorical purpose, but a lack of a purpose that, that rings true. Uh, and then finally, a kind of... Um, Discombobulation on the battlefield that I think has been a surprise to almost all observers. Uh, in a mm. sense, uh, you know, everybody had too robust an image of uh, of Russia's battlefield uh, capacities, and they've shown themselves to be a middling army when it comes to conventional war.
1: You mentioned uh, earlier um, the perhaps the, the three major uh, players whose perspectives we need to take into account here: the Western and 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 other powers supporting Ukraine, uh, Ukraine and the uh kremlin but but what of the russian people um we've seen in uh recent weeks a number of uh stories uh in the american press on uh russian uh resistance to uh military cons- conscription uh, could could that uh this sort of resistance to the kremlin's narrative in russia at home uh play a role in the war perhaps moving forward
2: it will uh and it can uh But here, I would just urge sobriety, Uh, it will sound like pessimism, I hope it's more sobriety that uh, Russia has nothing resembling an anti-war movement, uh, and has not had one since the very first days of the war where there were sporadic protests in a handful of Russian uh, cities. And by an anti-war movement, I mean something that has organization, that has a kind of plan, either some method of influencing people in the Kremlin, or... Uh, of perhaps putting in jeopardy uh, the Kremlin's rule or the Kremlin's power. There are such instances in Russian history going back, say, to the First World War where the Tsar's power started to weaken and then was eventually eviscerated by wartime protests. But uh, that's just not uh, the story so far uh, in Russia. What you've seen is uh, certainly lots of resistance to to mobilization uh, in the sense that most young... Uh, Russian men seem not to want to go to war, and so they've done things to evade the draft or they've left uh, the country. What you've seen, according to polling data in the last couple of uh, weeks and months, is a lot of anxiety in Russia uh, about the war. That's a new factor, but you have not seen this coalesce uh, into an anti-war movement. And if you trust the polling data, which I kind of have to, uh, it was a popular war up until, say, July, August, but it's still not an unpopular war uh in uh in russia and my personal conviction is that russians look at the war wish it wasn't there wish it wasn't happening but don't want to lose it Uh, and to that degree putin has the support uh, of the russian population but it's early days for a war that i suspect is going to be quite long uh and if putin would be prudent you know he is apparently in his own description a great student of history if he would be prudent he would study the history of long poorly articulated Uh, wars of attrition, uh, and he might see some very, very worrying signs uh, already within Russia, but worrying signs in terms of what could happen a year from now, two years from now, uh, three years from now. So yes, disorganization, chaos, I think a lot of discontent under the surface and behind closed doors, uh, but in public, uh, alas, uh, an absent or non-existent anti-war movement. So Michael, as I was listening to your
0: really uh, evocative description of the situation in Russia today, it does seem to me it echoes, as I think you implied, uh, the circumstances in Russia, perhaps in 1915 or 1916, when there wasn't an anti-war movement as we think of it in the United States. But there clearly was a restiveness and a um, discombobulation of society that contributed through discontent to the undermining of a regime. And shouldn't Putin be conscious of that, and should that have some effect on him?
2: He should. I mean, it's it's a very good uh, analogy, very telling analogy. In fact, in 1913, a year before the First World War begins, you have the, I think it's 1913, uh, but, you know, uh, roughly then, you have the 300th anniversary of the Romanov dynasty, which is celebrated right. with great, great enthusiasm across Russia, all different orders of, and classes of uh, of society. So if you would, you know, draw your conclusions from that moment, you would say that the Romanov dynasty had another 300 years uh, in it circa 1913. Of course, 1915, summer of 1915 is the apex of the war on the Eastern Front for Russia, where Tsar Nicholas II speaks in the Polish city of Shemysel, which is now a staging ground for the, for the war in Ukraine. So 1915, you know, there's a, almost a kind of euphoria about the war uh, in Russia. And then those two years that follow, uh, there's a very, very precipitous decline. I think that the one salient difference, in addition to just how huge the First World War was and how devastating for the population of Russia overall, which the Ukraine war so far uh, hasn't been, I think the one salient difference is that you have 20 years before the revolution, 30 years before the revolution, a long legacy of political violence. It's really Russia that innovates the modern practice of sort of political terror with assassinations. And I think it was thousands of czarist officials who were assassinated in those years, and you know, of course, uh, Bolshevik and other revolutionary movements that are, you know, sort of operating within Russia and uh, have the Tsar as a target, and that's you know not been the case for Putin. He's sort of presided over, in a sense, more stable uh, or, or 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 peaceful times. So there's not a revolutionary movement waiting in the wings right, uh, at the right. moment as there was. Uh, as there was then. But, you know, one has to be careful with those kinds of judgments because, especially in the dictatorship that Russia overtly is now, and, you know, probably has been for several years, but very emphatically is uh, now, um, there's a lot that's invisible. So um, there really may be revolutionary sentiment, but it's, it's, it's possible that we can't see it. But I think that the basic fact is that a war is a pressure point. An unjust and criminal war is an additional pressure point. And then a war that Russia may well be losing is uh, an even greater pressure point. Uh, And whether Putin has the capacities to navigate himself toward a ceasefire or to navigate himself out of this war or to navigate himself through this catastrophic war, it really remains to be seen. And and it's, it's possible that he does not have those capacities. Right. And it's also possible he might overcompensate and,
0: and come to the conclusion that the czar was too weak. And uh, you, you're you referring to the the uh, assassinations undertaken by SRs and others. Of course, you could argue now Putin's been the one doing the assassinating of people, <laughs> right? Right? <So>. Right. <laughs> right.
2: Exactly. There is political violence, but it comes from the state. <laughs> right. Not against the state. How do
0: you think about the on-again, off-again nuclear threats that come from Putin?
2: I'll offer you an argument that I think is clear uh, and I think also reassuring, and I hope that it's, it's, it's true. Uh, you know, I think that um, the value of the nuclear threat for Putin is the value that it has in terms of instilling fear. Uh, and he's done a good job in the last couple of weeks getting headlines about this. And, uh, you know, just today at the Valdai conference, a sort of international affairs conference in Russia was making jokes about nuclear war. Uh, and sort of bringing it back onto the uh, onto the agenda uh, and of course when he does that uh, he forces everybody to take note uh, of this circumstance that Russia is a nuclear power and you know kind of madman theory type uh, behavior from uh, from Putin uh, at the moment and I think that his goal uh, his most uh, uh, you know sort of uh, effective goal or sort of efficient goal with this is to so division within the body politic of perhaps the United States, but especially of Germany where, you know, you have a sort of pacifist sensibility and lots of concern, and anxiety about, about nuclear questions. So there, I think it really has a kind of utility for Putin. You just sort of keep the pressure on a low boil, keep people speculating. And I think journalists have a very hard time resisting uh, any kind of statement that Putin issues about, uh, about nuclear war. I'm not saying that, you know, it should be swept under the carpet, but it's, it's, it's sort of good copy uh, this 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 kind of stuff, uh, and uh, it's uh, you know it's a way of, uh, of of changing the conversation from Russia's battlefield defeats of the last two months uh, and putting it on a different footing and one that's more politically useful for for Putin. I do not you know insofar as I understand these things, I don't see great military utility in in, in Putin using nuclear weapons in the sense that I don't think it would win him the war. There is I think a very important difference between Hiroshima and Nagasaki and and, and and nuclear weapons that Putin might use, which is that in the summer of 1945, Japan was losing the war. Uh, and in a sense, nuclear weapons finished the deal. Uh, and at the moment, Ukraine is winning the war. Uh, and so I think it's the likelihood that Ukraine would surrender or sort of give up because of nuclear weapons use is, is is very low. And then there's the demonstration effect that nuclear weapons have, but it seems there that Putin probably would lose uh more than he would gain if he were to put these weapons into practice. And the point has been made, you know, sort of often that countries like India or Brazil that are fence sitters at the moment might get off the fence and even China, which has, you know, thrown in its lot behind Russia to a degree with this war uh, that even China might change course for Putin to use nuclear weapons. So I think the threat has a lot of value for him. I think the use of the weapons themselves uh, is pretty unlikely The only way in which I think it might become likely is if Russia were rapidly to lose, uh, perhaps in the vicinity of uh, of Crimea, or if a kind of escalation would occur by accident, which is Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully not going to happen, but uh, maybe a remote possibility. And,
0: and I, I think that makes a lot of sense, and it is a little reassuring, uh, a little reassuring, <laughs> we should say, not a source of complacency in, in any way. How do you think about the role of uh, our European allies uh, as as this war emerges and as we get into winter? It does seem one of the things Putin is counting on is that the pressure on the Europeans will be greater, both from the greater energy needs they'll have this this winter, and from m- rising prices. uh, And and the Saudis have certainly contributed to that by reducing production of oil in this period.
2: So one thing that I think the Europeans are not going to do, and I think this speaks to mistakes that Putin has has made regarding Europe, is that they're not going to go back. So it's very true that Europe will suffer, is already suffering from inflation and all of the costs that come with high energy prices. And I guess you could say, if you want it to be very simplistic, that the magic bullet would be the sue for peace in Ukraine and sort of get Russia to resupply, you know, the gas and the oil, especially the gas. But, you know, I think that Russia has shown itself to be so untrustworthy uh, that that would be a pretty uh, crazy argument for Europeans to embrace. And I think that they're not going to embrace it, you know, it's as if they've crossed that bridge, they've sort of crossed that Rubicon and there really isn't a way of going back to the status quo ante. So I just don't think that European countries are going to link sanctions policy or start exerting pressure on Ukraine in such a way as to, you know, sort of bring the war to a quicker uh, termination because of all the things that you're describing. But um, you know, having been reassuring on the on the nuclear question, let me try not to be too Pollyanna-ish on this uh, particular question. I think it's it's the way I see it. It's more as a set of variables uh, that are going to bring increasing instability to Europe. Uh, in terms of Europe's domestic politics. I mean, we saw this in 2015 with uh, the Syrian civil war and the migrant crisis that it generated, that it did, for example, in Germany, create a new kind of popularity for the AFD, for that far-right political movement. AFD has been creeping up a little bit in some of the more recent German uh, elections. And so it's not as if Europe per se is going to change course. I don't think in the next 12 months that's going to uh, that's going to happen, but will enough of these variables coalesce uh, to sort of diminish the consensus, uh, to foster polarization, uh, maybe to make Europe as a whole less functional and and and, and therefore less able to prosecute uh, the war, to, to to contribute to Ukraine's success uh, through financial and uh, and military means, uh, and in that sense, could the kind of Western coalition be degraded? But let me just throw in one further point here that the us plays a pretty important role uh in all of this and i don't think that europe is going to break from sanctions or from support for ukraine if the united states is robustly in favor of these things it's not as if europe uh, it's not as if the us calls the shots in europe but i just think that if you have strong support from the us it would be quite hard for europe to go uh in a very very different direction so i think for the next 12 months we'll see a kind of policy continuity uh if europe has to go through a second winter uh, of energy crisis, then maybe you could say all bets are off. But 12 months is is a long enough time in politics.
1: Well, and it, it seems to be shaping up for a pretty warm winter so far in lots of Europe. It's been yeah. a warm
2: fall, yeah. Yeah, well, let's hope so. Let's hope. I don't, uh,
0: it's hard to know what to hope for with climate change, right? right?
1: I mean, so I don't know what I'm supposed
0: to hope for colder or warmer weather. I don't know. I just want non-extreme weather. Let's put it that way. So, so Michael, uh, the the question that puzzles me the most is how ukraine should strategize going forward and and maybe we can talk about that you you've spent a lot of time i know thinking about the ukrainian position and all of this and it's clear as you said that they they've done so much better than so many of us expected and uh they are winning the war i think those are just undeniable facts Uh, but that doesn't mean they will win the war where should they go from here
2: Mm. it's not an easy question to answer the tragedy of ukraine's position is that russia is after all a nuclear power uh it is the case that russia has a population of 140 million people and however badly russia has done militarily over the last eight months uh it's not a military lightweight uh and it does have if it's able to sustain this war effort over a two three year time period it does have the chance to reconstitute itself and if putin stays in power which which he may uh, those ambitions are going to stay in place. Uh, the ambitions of taking Kiev, of toppling the Ukrainian government, of, uh, of of trying to exert considerable Russian control, at least over you know sort of half of Ukraine or a portion of Ukraine. So that, in a sense, is part of the landscape for Ukraine. Uh, in the way that the Alps are part of the landscape for Switzerland, you can't get rid of that set of circumstances. And I don't think that Ukraine can bet on Putin falling and a benign Russian president, pro-Ukrainian. You know, pro-Western Russian president coming to power—that's you know, that's betting on a thousand-to-one odds uh, of of something happening, and you just can't base your security on that uh, on that foundation. I think that Ukraine has to be very careful about keeping its alliances with the U.S. partnerships, alliances with the U.S. with Western Europe. I think Eastern Europe is going to be just very firmly in Ukraine's camp, you know, forever. So it, that's not something that Ukraine really has to work on so much, but certainly with the U.S. and Western Europe that support is crucial. So there it needs to just be clever diplomatically and continue using the kinds of narrative devices, social media devices that Zelensky has so effectively used. Uh, And then I think there will be a need uh, in the future, maybe a year from now, maybe two years from now, not for peace with Russia, uh, but perhaps for a version of a ceasefire uh, that Ukraine can then back up with real deterrent tools with, of course, the help of the US and with other outside uh, outside powers. So it's not that you're depending on Putin's good faith uh, to keep the peace, but that you can hopefully put an end to the worst of the fighting along which territorial lines I don't know. We can say going back to pre-February twenty fourth, I suspect that's probably on the optimistic side. But you know if it's that, if it's less than that, if it's more than that that you know is 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 up for determination a kind of line of contact, uh, uh, a 75% ceasefire perhaps, uh, and then really, really robust efforts uh, at deterrence that would make it hard for Russia to act on the will uh, that it will have, that it will retain to reinvade. And you know, we could go on to the economic questions from here, but let me leave it at that. But I think it will be a semi-peace enforced by deterrence uh, that will not resolve the problem, but put an end to the worst of the fighting.
1: And, and what about the sort of uh, maybe the factor that's most up in the air at the moment, which is uh, the American uh, political climate around Ukraine? There's been a lot of talk lately of what a Republican-controlled House of Representatives or Congress uh, entirely uh, would change about American policy towards Ukraine. Do you think there's a risk uh, that Ukraine loses, uh, in, in, in some significant sense, um, support from the United States? I don't think it risks losing support uh,
2: from the United States. I mean, it does feel to me like the Biden administration has been hurrying to get a lot of assistance over to Ukraine before the midterms. So they are perhaps worried about something. And, and, and I would take that quite, uh, quite seriously. Uh, you know, Congress is a co-equal branch of government and, uh, you know, <laughs> in theory could try to wind down the war, but that to me seems uh, a lot more than what Republicans uh, would attempt to do if they would take the house or if they would take the house uh, and the senate they, they may get in the way they may slow things down they may make the money harder to come by maybe worst case scenarios that they would start impeachment proceedings or congressional investigations related to the war that could muddy the waters and just make it more difficult to to argue for in the public sphere all of that is possible but i just don't think that congress is going to impose a change of course on american foreign policy with this uh with this issue and i don't think the white house is going to be persuaded by by congress to change course uh itself so you know there could be tweaks there could be diminishments to the policy but i think the policy is gonna stay long past uh the midterm elections and in in that sense i think 2024 will be the uh the sort of test case if 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 i were you know sort of in the biden administration at the moment Instead of looking at the midterms with fear or looking at the Republican Party with fear in this regard, I think that they should look at it as an opportunity uh, to just continuously connect, reconnect with voters, with constituents, with, um, with the American people and continue to win the argument. Uh, you know, The arguments that the administration has are very good uh, and it has a considerable track record at the moment. Uh, over the last eight months, so just keep driving that home. Keep sort of uh, engaging in the debate. In some ways, uh, a, a bit of skepticism or questioning from Congress can be a good thing. I frankly was was happy to see uh, congressional Democrats put out a letter a couple of days ago challenging Biden administration mm-hmm. policy. They retracted it. It was a foolish letter. It was very badly timed. It didn't present a you know I think a persuasive counter argument. But that's why I was happy about it. You know? <laughs> there should be a debate. You know that's what Congress right. should be doing. You don't want a rubber stamp of the kind that we had after. Uh, after 9-11, uh, let the chips fall where they may, you know, sort of put the questions out there and then give the Biden op- administration the opportunity to answer them uh, uh, effectively. So, you know, it's not what the administration uh, fails to see. I think that they see that, but, you know, they should really be directing their attention internally on these, on these matters. There is probably a bit of Ukraine fatigue in the American population You know, I think that there will be questions coming up about why the U.S. is doing so much. And in in a sense, comparatively, Europe is doing so little. uh, And, you know, those issues are going to have to be dealt with uh, and and managed. So that's, I think, how how ideally the, the sort of Republican skepticism could be converted into just a more... A firmly grounded policy for for the for the white house well and it does seem an area michael where there
0: is an opportunity to build bridges between some democrats and republicans on this issue not all republicans and not all democrats but it does seem that this is an area where one could see effective partnerships across the aisle
2: yeah certainly with mitch mcconnell so whose statements you know over the last couple of days um have been, you know, very robustly in support uh, of uh, of Ukraine, and I'm, you know, sort of less versed in, uh, in in other figures. But you see how a candidate like JD Vance has been sort of struggling on this issue that he wants to take a kind of, you know, what the the best description would be for it, but a kind of populist Ukraine skeptical line. He wants to, and he sort of tr- sent up a couple of trial balloons, and it seems not to have worked that well right. uh, in Ohio. That's not material for coalitions in the White House, but it is interesting that the kind of maybe it's a stereotype, but the sort of neo-Trumpian pro-Russian or, uh, you know, sort of skeptical uh, politician about Ukraine, that they seem not to uh, have very good recipes for connecting with voters and getting their message across. And that may be helpful in terms of finding other Republicans who are much more in line with the uh, with the Biden arguments about Ukraine. Right,
0: right. So, so Michael, to, to sort of bring all of this detail together, you've given us really such a a powerful and well-informed perspective on so many dimensions of this very multi-dimensional conflict. Is it safe to say really what this is is a war of attrition that we're in that is not going to end anytime soon and where there's unlikely to be major shifts militarily or politically in the near future?
2: I'm not entirely sure, getting a bit outside of my own actual Uh, expertise. But I think that what the 10th of September, the Ukrainian counteroffensive around Kharkiv showed is that what threatened to become a classic war of attrition over the summer could pretty quickly shift into something else. And again, the integration of HIMARS and other precision, you know, sort of missiles and other kinds of weapons uh, by Ukraine uh, has given them a kind of momentum. uh, I think that was surprising even to them and certainly very surprising uh, to the Russians. Now, granted, Kherson has not been uh, a cakewalk by any means. It's very, been very costly for uh, for the Ukrainian military. But there too, you could imagine that Kherson could, could, could fall to Ukraine. Uh, and, uh, you know, in that sense, uh, the war might take on new dimensions. I mean, I think that there was maybe a bit of over-optimism in September. People thought that Ukraine could kind of punch through the land bridge or maybe retake uh, Mariupol. And that uh, looks pretty remote Uh, at the moment. But I think, you know, there are some pretty considerable shifts shifts that could happen even over the winter. It's not, I think, guaranteed that the fighting will cease. I think the next couple of weeks are going to be pretty muddy and wet in Ukraine. So you might see uh, a very slow pace then, but it could come back. Of course, we need to remember that the war itself began in the third week of February. So it it was a winter war uh, at the outset, and it may be a winter war... Uh, in the next couple of months and you know I, I say with less um you know with i say with no enthusiasm at all but you know we have a social media conversation about russia's mobilization that's a little bit like the social media war very much filtered through certain lenses and we've seen the incompetence and you know russians running away and people who don't have enough equipment and all of that but you know mobilization over time will get rationalized uh, and if it is three hundred thousand additional soldiers that Russia has brought on board, uh, that too could make it something other than a war of of attrition, but that would be a spring-summer dynamic next year. So yes, it has many of those aspects of a war of attrition. Certainly if we look at the global dimensions, we have the kind of Russia bloc uh, and the Ukraine West bloc, and they're sort of trying to outdo each other through economics, not through military means. But on the battlefields, it could be, uh, you know, sort of fluid and dynamic, uh, certainly for the next couple of months.
0: And and that anticipated my my final question for you. Um, and you already spoke a bit about this, but I wanted to really uh, put a fine point on it. If you were advising the Biden administration now, would you advise the administration to try to support a breakthrough for Ukraine or to to bet on time? Uh, is time in is time
2: in our favor or not? I I, I think uh, betting on time. To me, makes more sense, uh, you know. If they can achieve a breakthrough, you know, Godspeed. But I don't think that there's any achievable breakthrough that Ukraine can can get to in the next couple of weeks or months that would fundamentally alter uh, the war. Uh, and uh, in that sense, the war is not going to be resolved probably by a by a breakthrough. It's going to be. Uh, real resolve and patience uh, on the Ukrainian side, certainly on the side of Ukraine's supporters, that's going to matter. And in that sense, the costs of the war as they begin to mount in Russia could well be a factor and could start to alter the dynamic. I think that the hardest task now for the Biden administration, and maybe they're there in private, You know, I don't see evidence of this in public, but the hardest task for the Biden administration is to figure out the place where this can you know, sort of finish up uh, acceptably. And, you know, obviously, the administration has repeated many times that it's the Ukrainians who are going to decide this, that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense, but it can't be up in the air forever. It's too soon to decide now, it's too soon to give it that sort of shape. But I think there's a way in which the story of the war and the end phase of the war are going to have to be brought together. My gravest concern about the war on our side is not the Republican Party, and it's not even the, you know, sort of the economic fallout of the war. It's that we'll lose the storyline, we'll sort of lose the narrative. Um, We've maybe pumped up a little bit too much of this Hollywood narrative about Zelensky, that he's the Churchill and he's sort of destined to win the day. Uh, I hope it's true, but it may not feel that way for a a long time to come. Uh, And if not, we're going to need a story to tell about this war that's going to keep our populations Behind it, and this can, that story is going to have something to do with how the war ends. So, if I knew all the answers in this regard, I would write it up for Foreign Affairs and uh, uh, put it out in public and sort of say what the answer is. I don't know what the answer is uh, in this regard, but this is where the Biden administration has to move. They've done brilliantly with military support for Ukraine, really brilliantly. Uh, and I think one only begins to see now through newspaper articles, there's a long New Yorker article about weapons provision to Ukraine is just sort of yes. the scale of the effort and the intelligence behind it and intelligence sharing and targeting. And it's uh, it, it, it's, it's been splendid. Uh, but it's half the necessary effort for uh, the successful prosecution uh, of this war. And I think the really difficult decisions, and they will be difficult, there will be some degree of compromise that's probably going to be uh, necessary on the ground. Ukraine is not going to get everything it wants in terms of, you know, war crimes, tribunals, and reparations. And and territory and sort of figuring out where that compromise is going to be acceptable is going to be enormously difficult but if we only defer there uh, and we're not willing to sort of contemplate some of those things uh, we'll run into this problem of narrative and story that if it's a war of attrition that lasts for 20 years uh, I just don't know on our side if we'll be able to sustain it we need a sort of better story than that we just have to uh, we have to arrive at that. I, I'm, I'm confident that we will, uh, but uh, it, it won't be easy work. And then sort of the final point one can make in terms of the Europeans is that it is disconcerting, of course, that we have continue- still, you know, a sort of German pragmatism, <laughs> British preoccupation with internal problems, uh, you know, France thinking about a kind of European vision for the war, and then Eastern Europeans who are very impatient uh, to see Ukraine triumph on the battlefield and willing to make very, very great Uh, sacrifices. So Europe is not on one page with this war, uh, and probably as time goes by, those differences could become more emphatic and more accentuated. It's yet another reason to kind of come to some kind of conclusion about the beginning of the end, in Churchillian terms. We're maybe at the end of the beginning, uh, but we're not yet at the beginning of the end, and and, and in a way we have to get there. I don't even mean practically, we sort of have to get there philosophically, figure out what the end means, what we can drive for, what we can push for, uh, and when we get there, I think a kind of complete strategy will have crystallized and come into focus. So that's, and maybe that's in terms of the public sphere and people like us who write about these things and teach them and engage with students, we have to sponsor a very rich, open-ended and creative conversation uh, on that point and, you know, sort of bring these ideas forward and, and, and give them as a gift to, to, the, to the policymakers. Absolutely. And and the Churchill quote that I, I used myself in my
0: recent book is, now this is not the end, it is not even the beginning of the end. And, and <laughs> your, your point is, we have to at least have some vision and begin a conversation, a story about w- what the beginning of the end is, <laughs> if well, it's not the end itself.
2: Jeremy, you and I are both, you know, sort of students of longstanding of George Kennan, and he comes to mind very often to me in this in this crisis because what Kennan recognized in a nuclear age is that you don't get unconditional surrender. In fact, I think Kennan felt in general a lot of wars you don't get unconditional surrender. It's a sort of an unusual right. ending to a war. And I think we can say with confidence we're not going to end this war with Russia's unconditional surrender. So what right. then? Right. And maybe we have to go back to Kennan and sort of think about how he conceptualized these things and 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 work with that. And 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 maybe it is some in the end some version of containment that's yep. going to. That's going to make Ukraine free. Uh, and that's that's a tricky way to end a war, but uh, but uh, I, I suspect it's a possible one. Well, and it's perfectly Clausewitzian, right? The, the 19th century German
0: theorist or Prussian theorist Karl von Clausewitz is his whole argument, right? Is that war is politics by other means, and that's as true at the end of a war as it is at the beginning of a war. Yes, yes. Zachary, uh, Michael has given us really such a, a, a powerful tour de raison of, of this conflict. He's allowed us to see the domestic and the international implications uh, in Russia and Ukraine and elsewhere. He's encapsulated so many dynamics. As as a young person watching this closely, and I know you and your friends are, and many others, what do you hope for in the next few months, Zachary?
1: Well, I hope uh, that, uh, as Professor Kibbage uh, echoed, uh, or I would like to echo what he said, uh, which is, I think we need to make sure that we don't lose the narrative. And I would like to see in the next few months uh, uh, a clear understanding among the American public of why we are fighting this war. I, I don't think we have fully lost it yet, um, but I think we need to um, take a hard look, possibly, at our initial fervor over the war, but at the same time retain the kind of, if not optimism, at least um, hope. Uh, that I think the last few weeks have brought and moral purpose as well. Indeed, yes. I mean, do you think the Hope moral message, moral purpose. Do you think the moral message is important here? I do think the moral message is important, and I think the advantage uh, from a uh, sort of narrative perspective in the United States is that I think it is clear to most or the vast vast majority of American observers uh, who the good guy is and who the bad guy is, and I think that that's always a much easier story to tell. Uh, and, and sell, if you will, to the public. Mm.
0: Michael, I want to give you the last word on that. When we first spoke uh, in February, um, in the shadow of the beginnings of this terrible war, uh, it was one of our most um, morally difficult conversations in more than 200 episodes on this podcast, not mm. because we didn't know where we stood, but because of the, the moral crisis in front of us. And and I I would just love to, to, for us to close with you some of your thoughts on on the moral issues today and what role they play in the war.
2: It's, it's it's hard to feel in any sense like we're out of the woods when it comes uh, to the moral questions for the simple reason that, as, as, as Zachary has documented in his poems, the atrocities have piled up, the war crimes have piled up. You know, it was very, very sad to read uh, last week the uh, advice of the Ukrainian government for those people who are now living as refugees outside of Ukraine's borders the advice was not to come home this winter because of all the sort of energy concerns and electricity concerns and you sort of think of the family dynamics there and the children and all of that and it's 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 utterly heartbreaking so despite all of the great battlefield successes Ukraine has had in the last couple of months that humanitarian tragedy is one that is intensifying uh, over time I, I i think that the extraordinary challenge, and it's just to, to echo Zachary's point, is that uh, it's not hard for us as outside observers to come up with a moral position uh, on this war. It's, 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 it's a very morally unambiguous war. It's hard to marry that moral position to the kinds of patience that this war is going to demand of us. Uh, and so in the same way that we might think about Kenan with his Refusal to sign on to unconditional surrender and the sort of when you think of containment, one of the contributions Kenan made was that containment was a strategy for decades, not for years. I think we're going to have to have a kind of moral posture that's capable of lasting for decades and not just for not just for years, because there's no doubt in my mind that Putin is going to try to outweigh us uh, right. and outlast right. us and out and tire us out and uh, you know count on our distraction and our return to entertainments or our preoccupations of private life and. Uh, of 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 domestic national life, uh, and his assumption is that we just don't care that much, and that was his assumption in 2014. We care more about Ukraine. I sort of heard that phrase a lot when I was in government uh, on the Russian side. We care more; you guys care less. To a degree, Putin was kind of right about that in 2014, but he has to be wrong about that uh, now. He must be. We must prove him wrong on that point uh, at the uh, at the present moment. So, how do we? sustain support for a country how do we state sustain moral resolve when you don't get the Hollywood finish when it's not saving private Ryan that's yeah. that's our question and we need the moral framework and vocabulary so let's let's never forget the Second World War it's always worth remembering uh, <laughs> but let's not overthink the Second World War at the present moment and and overthink that moment of of resolution because I think we're gonna have to live without a, a quick or easy resolution but at the same time uh, I think it was the word moral fervor that uh, uh, that Zachary used, you know, sort of uh, retain that world fervor as we stand at the river's edge of this war.
0: Right. And as George Kennan said of the Cold War and as uh, many uh, said it really throughout this, the Civil War and the long post-Civil War period in our country, it's the long struggle and the, the moral mission and narrative of a long struggle that, that's that's crucial. The Civil
2: War, um, the, I, I don't please. mean to extend the conversation too far, but the Civil War, and I haven't read your book, Jeremy, but I, I I wonder if you would agree with this point. I think the Civil War is an excellent analogy because, as Eric Foner and other great historians have taught us, it's not like the Civil War ends in 1865. Right. I right. mean, it's still, in a certain sense, ongoing in our political lives and, and culture, and certainly on the on the issue of uh, eradicating slavery and racial prejudice and, and those inequalities uh, that were one of the many reasons why the war was fought. Again, 1865, 1875, 1885, 1925, 1965. I mean, you can just see the sort of uh, the ways in which the cause was not realized uh, and the ideals of the war were not, you know, sort of fully achieved if they've even been down to the present day. So I think the Civil War is a very, very good uh, analogy uh, and uh, in a way a very, uh, a very sobering one. Precisely, precisely,
0: and and uh, back to the the point you've emphasized so many times so well, Michael. Uh, the reason it's a civil war by other means is because the um, the politics continue to matter enormously. The narrative matters uh, as much as who's firing weapons upon whom on a battlefield. Yes, Michael, you have given us really a an informative, provocative, stimulating, and very helpful way of understanding this. Enormously complex and terribly tragic moment that we're all a part of uh, in different ways right now. And I think you've also given us a pathway forward for our listeners who care about democracy and care about their own participation in democracy to see how this history can be useful how all of us can be part of at least the public discussion about the moral dimensions of this war and how crucial those moral dimensions are to the the content of the war itself. Michael, thank you for sharing your insights and your time with us. And we hope you'll continue writing so we can continue learning from you, from your pen, as well as from your voice.
2: Well, these kinds of conversations are only possible in the company of a poet uh, and uh, of a scholar of, you know, sort of wars, civil, civil cold and and civil cold and hot. So it, it's, uh, uh, it's the ways I like my steak, Michael. <laughs> right. Well, better civil than than cold, but uh, or rather, better better hot than cold. But uh, um, but uh, it's only possible because of the uh of the of the wonderful space that you guys create on this program so i will very very much look forward to uh the moment when it's possible to return to your company well we look forward to that as well
0: thank you as well uh zachary for your uh, stimulating and thoughtful poem as always thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this week of this is democracy